Good morning, North Sub. It's so good to be with you here today, whether you're uh, in person with us or if you're online. It's just good to worship. Um, that song gets me every time. The words in the beginning, uh, just that our worth is not our own in the strength of our flesh, blood, and bone. But how often do we feel like there's something we offer on the table of salvation when we don't? The worth is not in our own, it's in the one who did it for us. Um, such a good reminder for us today. Um, if you've been with us since the new year, you know that uh, Aaron and I had our second baby boy, and he is now two months and some change. So we're well into the 100 days of baby fog. Uh, Dr. Howard Hendricks famously stated that a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew, but he never gave any advice or warning for what baby fog in the pulpit will do. So <laughs> bear with me today. I want to align our hearts by starting off with a poem. It's titled, The Best Poem in the World, and the author is unknown. It goes like this. I was shocked, confused, bewildered, as I entered heaven's door, not by the beauty of it all, nor the lights or the decor, but the folks in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, the liars, the sinners, the alcoholics, and the trash. There stood a kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice. Next to him was my old neighbor who never said anything nice. There was Herb, who I thought was rotting away in hell. He was sitting pretty on cloud nine, looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus, hey, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How did all the sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Hush, child he said. They're all in shock. No one thought they'd be seeing you. <laughs> I wonder how many of us suffer from the same problem of this poem. The same problem that so many suffer from. Specifically that it's easier to see the faults of others and so difficult to see the faults in our hearts. How easily do we notice the tone of their voice before we notice the tone in ours? How quickly can I assume something about the way they use their money, but completely ignore the way that I mismanage my money? The struggle in someone else's life, of course, doesn't have to be the exact same struggle that I'm struggling with to be able to see it and for it to be an issue in my heart. To put it another way, any sin of another person is probably easier for us to see than the sin couched in here, regardless if they're similar. To phrase it as our text will say it today, we often see the speck in another person's eye before we see the log in our eye. This passage today should act as a doorway into our series, Jesus versus Idols, because honest self-reflection is vital if we are to seriously look at the idols in our life. We can't do so if we think ourselves as the rightful judge and yet cannot see the sin staring straight into our face. Or think of it this way, if we are to edify the church and be a light out to our neighbors, we're going to be more successful by humbly recognizing how we can first grow instead of pointing fingers. Our passage today is in Luke 6, 37 through 42. You can turn with me there and we'll read. 
Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he is fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take that speck out of your eye, when you yourself do not see the log in your own eye, you hypocrite? First take out the log of your eye, and then you will clearly see to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Let's pray over the word. Father, your word brings life. Your word is true. And today we pray that you bring truth to our ears and our hearts as we discern the, the, the stirrings and the longings of our heart. Amen. So our passage begins in verse 37. And this is probably one of the most well-known verses for uh, any non-Christian in the New Testament. In fact, I would go so far to say that it's probably the most well-known scripture, and you've probably heard uh, secular people saying, hey, judge not, don't judge me. This may be due to the fact that the chief value of our society is tolerance. You've probably heard things like, hey, why can't you accept me for who I am? Or God forgives, why can't you? God is love, I can love who I want. Each of these statements have a hint of truth in them. Sure, God is love. Yes, God does forgive. But the understanding of forgiveness and love is completely skewed. In the same way, we might find that our thoughts on judgment may be skewed. One of the chief objections that the world brings to Christians today is uh, that they are hypocritical, judgmental, intolerant, because historically they've seen Christians act in that way to the world. It may be true of some of us today, but I think that this passage is seriously misunderstood. In large part, because many Christians cannot distinguish when to judge and when not to judge, or what it means to really judge. So first, we need to distinguish the focus of judgment. And I think 1 Corinthians 5.12 will give us insight to this. Paul makes the distinction very clear that those inside the church and those outside the church require a different approach. He says, for what have I to do with judging others? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? What he is saying is that those inside the church should be approached differently than those outside of the church. Obviously, in God's eye, sin is sin. There's no doubt about that. Paul says in the very next verse that God is going to judge those outside of the church. So the sin will be accounted for, but it's not our role to judge those sins the sins of those outside of the church. Why? Well, what are we to expect from someone who doesn't have a relationship with God? You can think of it this way. If you ever came across someone who has never seen, heard of, or played the game of basketball a day in their life, would you expect them to know all of the rules? Would you expect them to know that they're not just allowed to carry the ball in their hands and walk down the court? Of course not. But if you've ever watched an NBA game 
you've never seen someone jump up faster to make this motion if LeBron James does that same thing. Why? There's a different expectation for someone who knows the rules versus someone who doesn't know the rules. How absurd would it be if I was playing basketball with my two-year-old son and he walked with the ball and I jumped up and went like this to him, expecting him to know better? It's not that the rule is any different, but the approach to the person is different. In the same way, we are to approach people inside and out the church, outside the church differently. So then if we judge those inside of the church, as Paul mentioned, the question is how? So next we need to address the usage of the word krino, the word to judge. It's a simple word meaning to divide, to sift, to resolve, determine, discern, or it can mean to judge and condemn. The context gives clarity as to whether the meaning is to discern or to condemn. Our modern word critic, krino, critic, critic will give you the right idea. It has the idea of an unfair evaluation. There are more passages in scripture that tell us to judge, actually, than there is to not judge. So the problem is, how are we to judge? That's what we need to determine. See, we are called to be a discerning people. We are not called to be a critic of others. What is being forbidden in our text is not the legitimate exercise of discernment, but the attitude of censoriousness. That's finding status by negotiation, or basically saying, or negation. It's basically saying, I'm going to make myself look better by criticizing you as looking worse. Censoriousness. We're being warned about unjust criticism. Jesus and Paul has warned the church about judging uh, those outside of the church for a reason. Historically, the church hasn't done a great job. And they've probably done more damage to the name of God and to his church because of uh, doing so poorly. Why is that the case? Why can't we judge well? It's not easy to judge accurately or with grace, is it? 1 Corinthians 2.11 says, For who knows a person's thought except for the spirit of that person which is in him? So the answer isn't that we can't discern right from wrong, but we should be careful to judge a person's heart and merely be a critic of that person, condemning others. Now we're offered a warning about doing so. In verse 38, it should scare us. It says, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, it will be put in your lap. The illustration here is of wheat being sold in the market. Basically, it was, it was really important for a person to get their fair share when they're purchasing, and you want the same, you have the same expectation when you buy something from a store, you want it to be fair. So you want to make sure that the volume of the container is perfectly full, so a good measure, a proper measurement is put in. It's pressed down and shaken together, saying that all the spaces inside of the container should be pressed so that there's no air. You ever get a bag of chips and half of it's air? You feel cheated, don't you? You don't want air in your wheat or your chips. And you want it running over. Add more on top of it to make sure that I'm being more than just fair. If you're not into wheat references, maybe a coffee, a coffee reference will do. Um, 
Any of my coffee lovers will know the difference between a well-made and a poorly made espresso. You want it to be measured correctly, pressed down so that there's no spaces. Otherwise, you get a weak coffee tasting more like dirty water. And I've never met a coffee lover that will pour, uh, turn down extra coffee, so let it pour over, right? The illustration is like, is saying that good wheat salesmen or good coffee salesmen, they're not just going to give you what's there, they're going to give you more and keep you coming back. Why is this scary? Because the same is true in reverse. The passage warns not only the good, but the bad that we give, we will also receive in return. So we see not only the good stuff, but the condemnation, the judgment, and the forgiveness. All of that is lumped into the same problem, or promise. We ought to be careful when pointing out the faults of others. Ask yourself, am I discerning here or am I criticizing? It's possible that the first one to recognize and potentially condemn the sin of another does so because they feel guilty of the sin in their life. So to help the crowd understand whether they are judging or discerning, so a judge, discern, judgmental is the critic, he tells a short parable, comparing those with sight to those who are blind. And we're going to look at the latter half of the text first. Starts in verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and don't notice the log in your own? How can you say to your brother, brother, take out that speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck that is in your brother's eye. An interesting twist on this statement is that speck and plank are from the same original word. So what Jesus is getting at is probably the speck and the log are of the same substance. Jesus is saying the reason that some people are so adept in finding the speck in another person's eye is they're so familiar with that same sin that they're dealing with. But did you notice that Jesus doesn't say don't care about the speck, right? At the end, he says, first take out the log, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck. So he's not telling you to ignore the speck, but he's telling you to work on yourself first so that you can do so clearly. He's saying you need to work on yourself before you can work on others. There's a story of a young couple who moves into a new neighborhood and the next morning they're eating breakfast and the young woman looks out their window and she sees her neighbor hanging out the wash to dry. She says, that laundry is not very clean. She obviously doesn't know how to wash it correctly. Perhaps she needs better soap or a better uh, washer. Her husband looks on and, and remains silent. Every morning that her neighbor tried to wash her clothes, she would say the same comments. Well, about a month later, the woman was surprised and finally saw some clean clothes on the line. And she looks at her husband and says, look at that. She finally washed clothing correctly. I wonder how she did that. I wonder who taught her. Her husband gets up and looks over and says, I got up early and washed our windows. How often are we looking at our sin before we look at the sin of others? Do we forget to wash our windows before pointing out 
the dirt in another person's life. It certainly isn't wrong to help a brother get a painful speck out of their eye if we can clearly see what we're doing. But how often are we as eye doctors with logs in our eyes operating on others when we can't see clearly enough to get the job done? Probably the person who has dealt with the plank in their eye knows the difficulty in dealing with sin. And they're not critical of others, but they love them. They want to see them grow. They want to see them prosper and address the sin gracefully. Jesus tells in the rest of his parable that really what he means is you don't just have a log in your eye, but you're blind. He told them, can a blind man see, or sorry, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. The ultimate goal of a disciple is to be like his master. It is a a well-established belief in Judaism and the Greco-Roman world, and we even see it today in apprenticeship models. But the people of that time, and many of us here today, are following blind people. If we see ourselves as excellent guides, but we don't realize our blindness first, we're just going to lead people into a ditch, into the traps of life. Many of you probably remember a time before GPS was standard uh, in, in all of our cars, but back then you would, you would have needed a map or someone with uh, really good direction-giving capabilities to get anywhere. I'm of a generation, when I started driving, we had TomToms in every car, and, uh, and now we have GPS and maps in our phones. Certainly it's a great tool, it has many advantages, and I can now get to any location so long as Google has mapped it out for me. But how many of us have felt that sensation when you forget your phone and you're in your car and you feel lost, you feel blind, right? You would not have wanted to follow me around Deerfield when I first moved here if I didn't have my phone. I would have gotten us lost. I would need a tool to instruct me or a leader to guide me to where I wanted to go. Our perfect tool is right here. The scripture. Our perfect leader, God, spoken into this tool. If we look to earthly leaders, no matter how great they are, we're going to be looking to someone who still isn't perfect. The world's greatest leaders still have blind spots. They still suffer from the sin of this world. Only one has ever conquered the sin of this world. Only one has ever not had a blind spot. Christ knew exactly where he was going. And he called us to follow him. Have you asked the one who sees and the one who makes the blind see to be more than just your guide, your tool, or your leader? but to be your Savior, your Lord? Have you asked him, Father, what are my blind spots? What is the log in my eye that I I just can't see? Can you help me take it out? If you haven't 
ask him to be your Lord, you might say a prayer like this. Father, I know without you I'm blind. I can't see what lies ahead, but you see perfectly. And I want to submit my will to yours. I ask that you only guide my heart and nothing else guides my heart. Be a light unto my path so that I may walk in truth. As we enter this sermon series, Jesus versus Idols, I want to challenge you right now to think on this. If there is anything that we desire that is close to God but not God, it still leads to ruin. God desires also for us to be pure, for us to be righteous. But when we covet purity and righteousness over him, we end up thinking highly of ourselves and we forget that we are still in need of saving. Resist the urge of censoriousness. Resist the urge of trying to make others look bad so that you can feel or look good. It's one thing to aim to be righteous, and it's another to claim that you are righteous. It's one thing to aim for righteousness, it's another to claim righteousness. Our big idea today is that the Christian walk is characterized not by pointing out the failures of others, but by turning to Jesus for the forgiveness of our faults. How do we do that today? I want to give you a couple action points. Number one, resist the urge to be critical of non-Christians. They don't live according to Christian morals because they're not Christians. They don't submit to the word like we do. They don't submit to Jesus like we do. So we need to have grace in our discernment. Let's not be critical. Action point number two. When our brother and sister, when our uh, brothers and sisters are in need of restoration, we do so with humility, gentleness, and in relationship. Come to the, to the table remembering that you have a blind spot as well. We all have a log which is in need of removal. And number three, pray for God to reveal ways in which you need to be growing and how you can be more loving to your neighbor. Will you practice number three with me now? Let's pray. Father, Abba, help me to see myself in my condition as you see me. Don't let me take for granted that I have sinned, but help me to see my sin for what it is. It is only by your grace that I am able to stand. Without you, I am no different to anybody else in the sin department. I relate to other sinners, Father, because I know what it's like to be one. Now help me to help other people remove the speck in their eye by first showing them you, Jesus, and doing so in love, with passion, and humility. Amen.